0: This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network and I'm Ben Schiller, features and opinion editor here at Coindesk. And joining me today is Danny Nelson. Hi Danny, Uh, it looks
2: like you're not appearing from your usual location. No, today I'm in Dallas, Texas where I have no mic and one dog, so the sound quality might be a little different than usual. Well let's hope the uh,
1: dog interrupts us, that's always fun. And Cam Thompson, you're a Web3 reporter here at Coindesk. Uh, How are you doing today?
3: Doing well. I actually have a new mic. So if you can hear it, if you can hear better quality, let us know.
1: Let's get into this. You sound very good today. There's so much going on in crypto at the moment, even more than usual, maybe. And we're going to give you some insight into what's going on, at least from our perspective. So stay tuned. Danny, do you want to just give us a quick rundown of what the show is all about? Yeah, the Carpe
2: Consensus is our opportunity to bring you guys the best speakers and ideas happening at the Consensus Festival. This week, we're joined by Andrew Keyes from Dharma Capital. He's going to be talking to us about his predictions for the year.
1: So first of all, we're going to talk about a story about crypto companies leaving the US. So let's get into that. All right, we're going to get into a new segment called Inside the Desk. No? (laughs) wait. is are supposed a... to give some kind of, uh,
2: you know, emotion here. I, know? I can make desk sounds mm. like here. I'm opening. This is the sound of a desk opening.
3: Blacking. <laughs> ASMR.
2: Yeah. All right. Come on, guys. Let's
1: get with it. So we're going to talk about the story from Jeff Wilser. He's a feature writer for us, and he's... Looking at the whole question about whether crypto companies are now looking to leave the US in the face of uh, a regulatory crackdown from the SEC and other regulatory agencies and particularly from the denial of banking services to crypto companies, which is a very serious issue. And a lot of people in crypto are now talking about a Operation Chokepoint 2.0 which is a reference to an Obama-era crackdown of perfectly legal but politically undesirable companies like payday lenders and pornographers. And a lot of people think there's a similar kind of campaign going on today to deny crypto companies those services as well. I don't mean the pornography services, I mean the banking services. What do you think about this, Danny? It seems like Jeff has laid out a pretty good case for why companies are doing that and that
2: they are doing it. So do you think that threat is real? Well, the threat is certainly real. I don't know if Choke Point 2.0 is itself a reality, or rather just a description of a lot of very similar events. I don't really buy into there being a vast government conspiracy, though there are many conspiracies that are certainly true. Uh, I would say, though, that just because you move outside the U.S. doesn't mean the U.S. isn't coming for you. As we record the show today on a Monday, uh, the CFTC has come down on Binance for allegedly offering derivatives contracts to U.S. customers that's something that Binance, which is not a U.S. company, was doing outside of the U.S. toward the U.S. allegedly. Other companies, too, just because they're outside the U.S. doesn't mean the government won't come for you. That's true.
1: I mean, uh, just on the question of conspiracy, I mean, uh, you know, whether you believe it's a conspiracy or not, I, I think makes a little difference because there does seem to be a coordinated crackdown. And whether it's, you know, 10 guys in a room deciding to kill crypto, or whether it's something a bit more ad hoc I think makes a little difference to the impact here, which is that the uh, companies which need banking can't get banking at the moment. So what do you think, uh, Cam?
3: Well, I think that taking a bit further step back, I think it's unfortunate that situations and events in the past couple months have led to this point in crypto regulation, right? Where we've seen a lot of bank failures, obviously with SVB, Signature and Silvergate, you know, coming out of that, where there's this, seems like this, coordinated effort to try to remove crypto services and almost establish this type of regulatory regime that may not necessarily had happened if there were already infrastructure in place or market conditions had at least been better. I mean, I think that's what it all comes back to. But it is definitely interesting to use this moment as the framework for future crypto regulation. It's not promising for me.
1: It's definitely not promising. And a lot of people would argue that these regulators are empowered to do what they're doing because of the lack of legislation out of Congress, that if we had some kind of consensus in Congress as to the way forward for crypto regulation, we wouldn't need to leave it up to Gary Gensler and others to make regulation effectively on the fly through enforcement action. So, um,
2: But with, with the current thing, I mean, like you, you, what you were talking about earlier with the banks, that alone to me is the biggest point. In this moment, we're seeing companies talk about leaving the U.S. specifically because they can't find the banking services that they need. And that's because the banks in the U.S., the ones that were willing to work with crypto, no longer exist in their previous form. So regulation aside, they just have to look abroad in order to get those financial services that a little bit ironically, crypto has uh, purported to give to people all this time.
1: But wait a minute, Danny. I mean, you're suggesting that there's a lack of availability of banking services for crypto because the banks that were servicing crypto fell into bad decisions and went bankrupt or you know, had to be liquidated. And I'm not sure that's quite true. I mean, and there are a number of other banks which are now denying services to crypto, which are perfectly solvent. So I'm not sure your argument really makes
2: complete sense. I think that there, there are three banks here. The first one was Silvergate. Silvergate collapsed, a voluntary liquidation, because crypto companies took out their money. The second one that collapsed, Silicon Valley Bank, also collapsed because of a bank run. But that one is a bit more of a nuanced story that doesn't only have to do with crypto. It has to do with interest rates and just uh, the flight of VCs. The Signature was taken out for reasons a little bit unclear. But all three of them were willing to work with crypto companies To a greater extent than many other major or semi-major banks and they just don't exist anymore so you
1: don't believe the stories about the fdic having a quiet word with banks to stop servicing crypto companies
2: oh i mean i know firsthand that it is uh, true like the fdic has made these noises and they haven't been so quiet about it they just haven't put out press releases there is uh, you know a movement among banks away from crypto but it's their right to make those decisions and, you know, it just ends up with crypto companies being pushed overseas, which, in my opinion, is not good for the industry. So, Danny, you say, you know, firsthand that the FDIC is doing this. Can you give a bit more uh, meat to that? Yes. Yeah, so some of my sources within banks that do work in the crypto industry, they have told me that they've had to change their practices or at least how they're thinking about the crypto space because of guidance that the FDIC has issued. So right there, I was hearing examples of, you could say pressure, you could say recommendations, but real it is the FDIC going out and, and saying, these are the best practices. I don't think, though, that they're doing it behind closed doors.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you believe in investor protection, then uh, you would want to keep these companies here because it's easier to protect investors when you know, these companies are based in the US.
3: I also wanted to bring up a parallel example. And this is in a different country working with a different regulatory regime, but Over the summer in August 2022, several Portuguese crypto exchanges were forced to leave Portugal because the Portuguese banks were no longer supporting crypto. Now, this wasn't because of bank failures and bank runs like we've seen over the past month. This was because simply there was lack of certainty about the regulatory framework and bringing it back to the conversation about whether or not this is because of the bank failures or because of banks just choosing not to support crypto anymore. You know, in that example, all of these Portuguese exchanges had to look elsewhere and they fled because of this. I think that in the U.S. it's something very similar that's going on. You know, obviously not the same exact thing, but it isn't just about the bank failures that are causing this. It's lack of regulatory regime and clear guidelines for how to operate a crypto company and where to be able to hold those assets.
1: Exactly. Uh, And just this week, you know, we saw an example of that crackdown with Coinbase mooted to be under investigation by the SEC for flouting securities laws. Uh, And you could argue that this came from nowhere, but Gary Gensler has been saying for a number of years that he thinks that everything that is a token that is not Bitcoin could potentially be a security. So, um, you know, this threat has been hanging over companies for a while but hasn't really been enacted. You know, now companies are running around thinking, are they going to be next? And is the SEC going to meet out some partial justice here? So we'll have to see how that plays out. Danny, any more thoughts on this?
2: For sure, yeah. The real rub with Coinbase, and we should say we don't fully know the extent to which the SEC is looking into Coinbase. We just sort of know that it has to do with their token listing procedures. But without knowing those facts, we can say that Coinbase did go to the SEC years ago when it went public and said, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to approach these things. And at the time, the SEC said, okay. And now the SEC seems to be changing its tune. And you know, you, if you're going to have clarity, you need to have consistency. And we don't see that yet. So take a look at Jeff Wills's piece,
1: which is up today. Uh, And it also gets at the question of which jurisdictions could potentially benefit if these companies do leave the US. Uh, And there are a number of jurisdictions out there that are known for having more favorable regimes for for crypto, and they include Dubai, Singapore, and parts of Europe. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, this kind of regulatory arms race between these different jurisdictions and who might benefit over the long term.
0: Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code CARPE to get 15% off your pass. Visit coindesk.com slash consensus or check the link in the show notes.
2: So today on Speaker Spotlight, we've got Andrew Keys, the president and co-founder of Dharma Capital. He's here to talk to us about where we stand in the market, I'm here to ask him, maybe even grill him, about his predictions for the year. You know, Andrew, These uh, anytime anyone writes any predictions, it's almost like, uh-oh, I know that this is gonna come back to bite me. So I, so I don't feel too bad picking on you because this is a big, broad one, but I did, I couldn't help but take note in your write-up, uh, which you wrote in December, we published in December, that you thought that this year would really show that Bitcoin was failing to live up to its digital gold hedge status. And, you know, in the last few weeks with the, the banking crisis, we might be seeing the exact opposite of that. So, Andrew, I'm reaching out with a lifeline. There's still time to, uh, to renege on that prediction. Where do you stand?
4: Well, I still think that Bitcoin has some headwinds with respect to, most importantly, kind of its consensus mechanism and proof of work. That said, uh, you're right. While the banking crisis has imploded, we have seen strength in Bitcoin. So, uh, you know... I, I don't get them always right.
1: Andrew, so uh, I mean, just picking up on the banking crisis and the shutdown of services going to crypto, how serious a threat do you think that is to the US crypto industry?
4: I think it's a material issue. And we're navigating it just like every other entity. We had Silvergate uh, as an example. And, and we're, we're, we're applying for new bank accounts right now as we speak. We're seeing kind of a hostile environment To this technology. And frankly, we're living in a global competitive market. And I think a lot of innovation is going to leave the US, unfortunately, with respect to what we're seeing on banking, what we're seeing in the SEC, I would say, in particular, in in, in kind of how they're ruling via enforcement. I don't see America winning Web3 like America won Web1, unfortunately.
1: And do you see this denial of banking services as a coordinated crackdown by the relevant agencies, or do you think it's more of a kind of happenstantial thing where people are just reacting to risk and kind of going risk
4: off? So the one that was odd to me was Signature, that had the, the capital requirements and wasn't in, in a place where they needed to bankrupt or basically need FDIC to step in. Uh, that happened over that same weekend with uh, when Silicon Valley Bank was imploding. They, they, they were trying to just add it to, to the list. That one, I feel like if, if, if someone wants to get their tin hats of conspiracy theory, that one, I think, is a raised issue. The others, I think, were, were more kind of asset and liability duration mismatches, which have been discussed ad nauseum.
3: So, Andrew, I have a question for you, and it's kind of piggybacking on what what you said in your last response. So you talked about a crackdown on the technology. However, it seems like a lot of the conversations have been centered on cryptocurrency itself rather than the technology. And I'm curious where you see this separation. Is there a separation when we talk about cryptocurrency? Is it independent of other Web3 technologies such as blockchain, NFTs, DAOs, all of that?
4: Sure. So, so I think simply put, this technology has enabled the ability to tokenize all assets and not all assets are securities. I think basically what we're trying to do is wrap a brand new technology in a hundred year old regulatory compliance regime, which is the 1940s Act of the Security Exchange Commission. And frankly, this technology enables things like trade and settlement happening in the same instance. So like notions of like having a clearinghouse, which is is something that, you know, the SEC necessitates uh, is unnecessary. And so I, I think, basically, we need to develop an ontology for tokens, because some act as commodities, some act as securities, there are security tokens, some act as, let's call it an asset to a person that enjoys a piece of art, but I don't think is necessarily a speculative security. And then like you can have a token that is a prescription from a medical doctor to you. You can tokenize the, the notion of a prescription, and that is a non-fungible asset to the patient. But that's not a speculative asset. So I, I, I feel as though we are in this regime that is trying to essentially garner jurisdiction and, and basically have the largest attack surface, which is not doing justice to the technology.
2: So Andrew, you know at Dharma Capital, how are you reading these markets right now? Where are you positioning yourself and your clients? And like, especially with the, the ever-changing environment around regulatory risk, how do you navigate these waters?
4: So I, I think that we're actually kind of in a, in a sea change. There's a multifaceted kind of way to answer that question. Specific to, let's call it like the large caps, you're right. Bitcoin has outperformed very well. And, and, I, and I think that trend will continue because there, there isn't really the regulatory crackdown. Uh, it's kind of the one concession Gensler has made that Bitcoin is not a security, uh, interestingly. So I don't think you're going to have that regulatory headwind. Specifically for Ethereum, I am long-term, very bullish, short-term, neutral to bearish, as we are 14 days from, or maybe 15 days from uh, withdrawals being enabled, where Ethereum stakers have deposited kind of on a one-way street uh, staking, and they will be able to access that capital. and I do think that there's going to be a bit of a sell-off in the short term in in April. And then I, I would say broadly speaking, we are in a interest rate environment that we haven't been in for you know over ten years. And I think that it's relatively risk off until we see central banks pivoting. and the the banking crises that have uh, that have occurred, I think is the beginning of, of, of what's going to continue. I do foresee more banks having issues based on these asset and debt liability mismatches, primarily on time durations of, of bonds. I think that it's going to be risk-off in equities, in crypto for the not-so-distant future.
1: So, Andrew, you're very much an Ethereum guy. Uh, You you staked your crypto career on that blockchain. Can you give us a sense of what you're most excited about going forward in terms of the kind of technology roadmap of uh, Ethereum?
4: What we're seeing, in my opinion, is kind of this kind of like 80-20 rule where 80% of the applications that I see built on blockchains are being built on Ethereum, just like kind of 80% of searches that happen on search engines happen on Google. And there's you know, a bunch of other blockchains and, the, and they all kind of fight for the other 20%. Just like there's a bunch of other search engines that all fight for the other 20%. We're going to be seeing a lot of focus around layer two scalability. And I think there's kind of this block space scalability issue will be primarily solved over the next 12 months. Within the last five, six days, You've seen ZK Sync, which is a zero knowledge Ethereum virtual machine, Polygon uh, launched today, and you're going to have ConsenSys ZK EVM. So you've got three ZK EVMs. And then at the application layer, I think A, you're going to see a ton of it moving offshore, unfortunately. B, I'm hoping that we get out of this trading aspect where we actually start seeing applications that have true utility aside from you know buying a token selling a token or some type of derivative of it or lending it where we're actually seeing like kind of the tokenization of identity and reputation and supply chains and really using this technology aside from kind of a speculative manner.
1: interesting so uh one of the things you mentioned there was zk can you just give our listeners a sense of uh, how that changes the game
4: what prior to zk and and i'll just use kind of like web2 web1 analogies in web1 we all used intranets permissioned networks because the internet didn't have firewalls it didn't have privacy and basically right now every transaction is broadcast on public permissionless ethereum or in a permission flavor or on a layer two but basically all the data is available All of the data shouldn't necessarily be made available. And basically, this gives the optionality uh, for confidentiality. I, I always use the analogy of, you know, when someone goes to a bar and shows their license, they shouldn't have to show where they live. They shouldn't even have to show their date of birth. They should just have a proof that they are over 21 years old. Similarly, kind of on the same vein, Amazon shouldn't know where you live and FedEx shouldn't know what you bought. And, and, and so you can kind of have these granular proofs that will be taking place of kind of these full disclosures that we use that, that, that create messes of, of data privacy issues.
2: To hop back to what you said earlier about the interest rate environment, you mentioned we really haven't seen, and we being the economy, hasn't seen interest rates at this level in 10 years, maybe a little longer, really, because, since the financial crisis. Crypto also wasn't around before the financial crisis. So, crypto as a thing has never been in an environment where money isn't cheap. So, is crypto sort of dependent on money being cheap for it to succeed? Like, are we going to be able to thrive? If, if just interest rates are high, like, is it as simple
4: as that? Great question, Dan. I don't think crypto is large enough as an ecosystem, as an economy. It's not developed enough as a technology. I still think it's an alpha. It's not scalable. And, and, and basically at a trillion dollar market cap, it is a fly on the dog of the global economy.
2: A very loud fly, though. It's buzzing about our ears quite a lot.
4: It is loud. A lot of people, and, and I think, you know, the younger generation, which, which I guess I'm on the tail end of, is fascinated by it. And, and I think we see what's gone on. We've lived through now a couple of financial crises, if you count 2001 as well. But I would say that what, what we've seen is it's almost acted like a multiplier on risk on tech. So if you overlaid crypto, and let's just call it Bitcoin Ether, to Fang stocks, They've kind of acted in parallel, and, and crypto kind of led because I think there's, there was kind of more risk and more leverage taken in with respect to purchasing digital assets versus securities. It'll be probably the 2028 financial crisis, not the 2023 financial crisis.
1: I mean, it does seem like crypto is enormously dependent on the macro environment, whether that's interest rates or regulatory agencies or banking services. So, I mean, how do we kind of square the ethos of crypto and this kind of idea of it being a parallel system that enables censorship resistance and kind of independence and autonomy for people with that kind of growing trend of being enmeshed in a very traditional system? How how do we kind of think about that problem?
4: Very deliberately. uh, And I think you raise a really great question. I think that crypto can't live in a vacuum. It has to coexist with, with law. Uh, and with regulatory compliance, with the interest rates of the natural world, and it is to a certain extent, and it's kind of learning its lesson. And, and I think you know you can you can flush those points out. I mean, I think we're already seeing it with interest rates, and we've seen issues with interest rates and the price of crypto correlating very seamlessly in terms of like regulatory compliance. I I just hope we can have thoughtful regulatory compliance that gives credit and nuance to the technology. If we shoehorn this technology into the existing securities regime uh, without any concessions, I think that it would just be such a waste and and a loss for the United States.
3: One thing you brought up earlier was this idea of, you know, having prescriptions for medication as an NFT, essentially, you know, having that as an on-chain asset, which is, you know, it's non-fungible, but it's not something that's speculative. So I want to go back to this example and talk about how NFT use cases are growing a lot. And there are a lot more ways where people are seeing the value of not even just the value, like speculative value, but the actual, you know, significance of being able to put an asset on chain. In a lot of those conversations, it's hard to separate that, right? From you know, an actual speculative asset or NFT markets and insane volatility. So I'm just curious, you know, how you imagine slash expect, slash hope those conversations go when talking about regulating, you know, tokenized assets in the form of NFTs.
4: Well, I, I think we have to develop an ontology for what a token is and and basically create matrices defining what is a security versus what is a commodity versus what is a NFT for speculative purposes or non-speculative purposes. Concert tickets could be digitally native, but they're not necessarily securities. And same things with the prescription. So I think we need to proactively lobby for some type of ontology that is not necessarily run by just the SEC, but by, I would argue, a new regulatory regime. That, that uh, could grapple with the costs and benefits of this new technology. And, and it starts by understanding what it does. And, and, and I, I would say, kind of, the tokenization of assets, the digitization of legal agreements, and the notion of self sovereign digital identity, which is, is another kind of rabbit hole in and of itself, but should be able to solve a lot of the KYC AML issues if they actually understood how the technology works.
2: So to wrap up here, you know, Andrew, we started with a prediction. Let's end with one, too. You, you wrote that this year, in 2023, we're going to see that the media stops looking for gods in crypto. There'll be no more gods, and it will seek out rational voices. You know, Coindesk and everyone, we were, to some extent, culpable in, in accepting, uh, to a point, uh, Sam's, Sam Bankman-Fried's representation of himself as a wonder kid. In the media, it's really hard not to be attracted to these big voices? How do we, like, crypto's, if nothing else, something that's very drawn to narratives, right? Whether or not those narratives are what's best for us, we are drawn to narratives, right? So how do we, as an industry, force ourselves not to get wrapped up in the God figures when we are so driven by the narratives?
4: Well, I think we have to learn our lesson of what just happened. Uh, And I think that probably everyone's going to be a bit more cautious, you know, moving forward. And I think that we're also in this kind of transition area where I think we're going to see a lot more work migrate from the protocol layer to the application layer. The, The Internet of the past didn't have the World Wide Web to basically tout every upgrade. You know, when HTTP was being built and when we were, you know, in the 90s, when, when most people were on AOL, the actual protocol of the internet didn't have a speculative nature and it didn't have this communication medium that we do now that we, that we have with, let's call it the Web3 blockchain ecosystem. So, so basically the gift and the curse that we have now is that we can have rich communication and rich speculation on protocols that aren't even yet finished. So I think that as these protocols start ossifying and maturing, and, and frankly, they're not there yet, we should see the application layer blossom. And I really think that with the application layer, we can show true utility besides the speculation of a, of, of a token, and that should create the truth to the narratives. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. See you at Consensus. It's 2 p.m. on a Tuesday. You've been invited to a fashion show during New York Fashion Week in September. It's going to be a very high profile event. So you make sure that you're wearing your best outfit and you step into the warehouse. The bass music is thumping. You're looking for the people, but no one's there. It seems like there's a door, a very creaky door. Creaky noises, come on. Yes. You open the door, and you see a swirling blue circle. It looks like a portal. You decide to just take a dive in, and all of a sudden, you're in the metaverse. You've realized... Nice. You've realized the fashion show that you wanted to go all along wasn't in real life. It was in the metaverse.
2: Oh, that's terrible. I hate it.
3: Wow, thank you. Um,
2: no, no, I like your I liked your intro. I hated the I hate the metaverse. I liked your intro. Though.
3: Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that Metaverse Fashion Week is coming up. And now I'm not going to really agree that I hate the metaverse, but something that I have been more critical of than I have been in the past, I would say I'm kind of turning on it in a way. And you know, I don't really don't want to disappoint anyone by saying this. I'm obviously trying to learn a lot about it, and there have been so many great people that I've talked to, but I am critical of metaverse fashion. I'm critical of it. I don't know if it's going to actually be adopted, people buying clothes for their avatars and companies stepping into the space and creating a lot of digitized goods that people are going to actually pick up on. I feel like there's so much legacy and physical history in a lot of these luxury fashion houses, and I don't know if that's translating to the metaverse. That being said, Metaverse Fashion Week is coming up. We're going to see a lot of Web 2 native and Web 3 native brands step into whatever platform it is, actually, sorry, they're going to step into Decentraland with different activations. Now, we saw it last year. I remember I wrote a story on this, and Danny, you edited it for me. It was one of the first stories that I wrote when I was a news intern, and we were looking at what it actually looked like. So I remember I, Danny, I remember you told me to go into Decentraland and poke around and just hang out and check out these different pop-ups, and it was dismal. I'm not gonna lie. I'm sorry. I didn't really... Think that there was much to it. I don't know if you guys had a similar experience, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on this event that is trying to bring digital fashion to Web3 and whether or not it's going to be able to do so.
2: Uh, I don't know. I don't see how the Metaverse Fashion Week should take off. I mean, in a way, it should, right? Like in the video game space, if you're playing Battlefront or Cod or whatever. You've got people paying a lot of money for skins, which are basically outfits for your avatar in a game. That market is huge, billions of dollars. It's also for an asset that is tied to a game, and when you buy a new game, you can't transfer that asset, you can't sell it, you can only buy it. So there should rationally be a market for metaverse fashion if people are expressing their willingness to buy digital fashion goods, and yet we're not seeing it take off, and I don't know why it would start to if it hasn't already. Like, I don't think that it's because Decentraland is clunky to use that this is not working, though that certainly might play a part in it. I just feel like Metaverse Faction Week is a product of a lot of money being invested in partnerships, partnerships, partnerships that aren't taken off. You know, there's a scene in Spaceballs, which is one of the greatest movies, where Yogurt explains where the real money in the movie is coming from. And it's merchandising. It's merchandising. Spaceballs the lunchbox. Spaceballs the video game. We're not seeing Metaverse the NFT. We're not seeing Fashion Week the NFT. I don't think we're starting to see that anytime soon.
3: I mean, it's a great point that you bring up about how people in Fortnite will spend so much money on skins. And yes, it is a Web2 platform. It's its own Metaverse. But at the same time, It's almost better that it's so siloed and it's this walled garden because if you think about it, there's an actual use case there. Like people love Fortnite. People are obsessed with it. People will spend so many hours playing this game and they'll do anything to flex and to do dances in their favorite outfit. And if people can't have that same experience where there's so much passion around one use case in Decentraland, the sandbox, all these other metaverse platforms, then I think that's part of the reason why it's not taking off. I don't know. It's very interesting. It's not very Web3 ethos of me, but I have to go against it.
2: Well, here's a theory, if you will. The reason why people are willing to pay all this money in video games for their appearance, it's not because they're coming at it from the perspective of, well, I love how I look in the video game, and therefore I like to play the video game. They like to play the video game, and then therefore... It follows that they then want to change how they appear in the video game. So, what we need for Metaverse Fashion Week to succeed is for the metaverse itself to be popular enough that people are interested in it. And then you have like hundred. If you have a hundred million people who are interested in the metaverse, let's just say ten percent of them, ten million people, are probably also interested in fashion. And then you'll have an actual market for this stuff because people were first drawn to the platform to the game. And when, when they're drawn in, then they get to the point where they care about how they look. And right now, I think we're coming at it from the other way around. We're trying to say, here's how you can look in the metaverse, where everyone's saying, but I don't actually care about the metaverse. And if I don't yeah. care about the metaverse, why am I going to pay to look like a certain way in the metaverse?
3: Exactly.
2: Yeah. So I, I'm not a big fashion
1: guy myself, as you can see from my picture here. But, uh, you oh, know, come I, on, I, Ben. You look great.
3: You're always stunting.
1: I always enjoy a good party and that sort of thing. So, um, I mean, it does seem to me like the point of a fashion week is to get together with your friends and acquaintances and colleagues and former colleagues and have a good time. So, you know, going on to something like Decentraland, which doesn't always work, and trying to do the same thing or something like it doesn't really sound like a very good alternative to me. I mean, I think there are lots of things that actually, you know, can possibly work online but you know it seems like a fashion week is something that really needs to be done in person
2: so i don't really see the benefit of going uh, onto a metaverse or any other platform do you remember ben early on in covid when coindesk in one of its wiser financial decisions decided to buy us all 500 oculus riffs uh, and then we actually had a meeting in the metaverse the only one we've ever done
1: I do remember that. And uh, one of our colleagues, uh, whose name shall remain nameless, getting motion sickness or something like seasickness while he was wearing this headset and could not participate in the meeting,
2: uh, which seemed like a bit of a bummer for him and for the rest of us. So, Well, motion sickness aside, would you have been willing to pay $300 to have been wearing a funny hat when you met your colleagues in the Metaverse for the first time? No. Because that's what Metaverse Fashion Week's all about. $300 for a footy hat. Hell, even $400. Well, if Ben's not willing to pay the money, I don't think anyone is going to be. So like, I don't know how. Cam, you tell us. You're the expert here. How does Metaverse Fashion Week move into the category of success?
3: So I think that what you said earlier was a great point. The fact that people need to actually play in the Metaverse and engage with it and really understand how it works before they can make up their own minds about whether or not they want to actually engage with this fashion and these wearables. I was talking to Kathy Hackle about this. I recently wrote a piece about metaverse fashion and who it's for and what its use cases are in target markets. And she was telling me that it'll be interesting to see how metaverse fashion translates to real life style. But I don't even think we're there. I think that's like 50 years in the future when this era we're in right now is considered vintage. I don't know if you guys feel the same, but I don't know. I'm pretty happy with the default options, by the way. Like, when, when you log on and you don't connect your wallet, they give you a stripy shirt and some pants and some shoes. I'm like, that's fine for me. I just need to figure out how the heck I move around because I don't even know how to do it without freezing every five seconds.
2: And of course, we have to mention the thing that's on everyone's mind. Rick Sanchez, aka Do Kwan, was arrested in Montenegro on false Costa Rican papers and and now faces a whole gang of crap uh, relating from his time at Terraform Labs and the crash of Terra Luna. So Rick Doe, we're not really rooting for you, but we're excited to see where, this, where these cases shake out.
1: Danny, here's a question for you. Uh, if you were on the run from uh, some crypto investigators, where would you go? Would you go to Montenegro? Well, I can't tell you that.
2: Like, we, we don't know what's going to happen to me, right? I can't be telling these secrets, but let's see. I think I would try to get myself to Antarctica. No one's going to look there. I might not make it that long, but no one will find me. And that's what's important. Yeah, good. Well, we'll miss you.
3: All right. That was Carpe Consensus. Thank you so much for listening. Ben, Danny, catch you guys next week. We'll talk about more crypto news. And in the meantime, if you haven't got your tickets yet, make sure you buy your tickets for Consensus, April 26th through 28th in Austin. It's going to be a great time. We'll be on the ground there. So make sure to say hi. We're friendly, I promise.
0: Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production, executive produced by Jared Schwartz and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.